bastard. <laughs> bastard. 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 Tell me, tell me when I get warm. Bastard. 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 Warmer. Bastard. Warmer. Bastard. No, cooler. That sounds like busted. Yeah, that, that sounded wrong. Bastards make me feel good. There's a fucking you? You know what this cold opening needs to save it from uh, ultimate doom? Beer? Beer. Beer. Everybody, welcome back to Digital Noise. I have no explanation for what just happened, nor do I feel I really uh, owe one. So, welcome to Digital Noise, which is, of course, our Blu-ray DVD review podcast right here on OneOfUs.net. I am Brian Salisbury. I'm still not. I'm still Richard. You're still Richard Whitaker, a.k.a. Parallel Dimension Brian Salisbury. And we are here to review the latest... Very uh, compact batch of Blu-rays and DVDs to hit the shelves. Could it be something to do with the fact that last week was Thanksgiving and therefore the studios went, fuck you. If you haven't bought it already, screw you. Yeah, you guys feasted uh, two weeks ago and now we're just dealing with the leftovers. Oh, this was... The last couple of weeks have been a serious attempt to kill every critic on the planet. (laughs) So, you know, you're probably still listening to the marathon uh, editions that we put... I thought you guys were still recording it. I thought that's what this was. I feel like I'm just... We're just tag-teaming in. Yeah. All right. want to remind you guys that all of our podcasts, including Digital Noise here on OneOfUs.net, are available on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. All you have to do is go to iTunes and look for One of Us in the podcast section or stitcher i don't know how that works that's just voodoo but you can also follow this show on twitter at digi noisecast that's d-i-g-i noisecast or you can follow the website at one of us net you can also like the website on facebook facebook.com slash one of us net and that whole housekeeping thing i just did with all those plugs is probably going to take longer than the reviews this week <laughs> so with that in mind it's time to reach out to you the intersphere and uh f- completely fuck up this intro <laughs> Because I d- I've been drinking. It's been a long day. Let me try this again. It's time to reach out to the Intersphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... The You've got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Could you please stop doing shots with me? You're, you're an enabler. You're an enabler, an enabler, an enabler. Okay, waddle away. All right, our first question comes from Alec Miracle. Miracle of life. It's a miracle you got that last name. And his question is actually one that's very... Uh, is, I'm, I'm interested to see how this goes. What is the better franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th? Okay, let's do, let's do this on, 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 on three? three. Okay. One, one two, three. three. Friday Nightmare the 13th. Yeah, I knew oh! this was going to happen. I absolutely fucking knew this was going to happen. Friday the 13th is unequivocally the best franchise, but I will let Richard tell you why he is wrong. Um, I, I kind of love... Oh, I will always love the fact that Nightmare, when it went so completely off the rails, and it does kind of go off the rails, it comes back to what it does best with uh, New Nightmare. Uh, and I, I, you know... That it, you know, it disappears into being this klutzy, weird comedy, which actually, the films don't do it as well as the TV series. The Freddy TV series is actually pretty entertaining because it basically goes, oh, we're going to introduce you a character and then something horrible will happen to them in this anthology series in, in 30 minutes' time. Yay! 
And that's the thing. You could support an anthology series on it. You can't support an anthology series on Friday the 13th because the Friday the 13th series is nothing to do with it. I think this, you know, there's two... The thing is, there's two Nightmare on Elm Street franchises. There's the gruesome, gory comedy, which is basically, like, big-budget trauma. Or, should I say, slightly less tiny-budget trauma. I was going to say, big-budget trauma um, <laughs> is just regular-budget other movies. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the kind of the weird smart stuff which is basically one two and uh, a new nightmare and I, those films i think really stand up to a lot of scrutiny because wes craven at his best i think has always been one of the smartest horror directors because he dismantles what horror is about and that's what those ones do really well and then you've got the weird comedy stuff which uh, you know i regard as a separate franchise because that was the studios going let's get dopey yeah freddy versus jason is a complete piece of shit we can all agree on that one disagree oh weirdo and wrong love um, that movie so wrong. That movie is just sweet, sugary, caramel-coated popcorn fun. There, there is the hilarious moment where What's-the-Face from Destiny's Child get killed a lot. Kelly Rowland. Yeah, like that. But she doesn't get killed soon enough, which is probably the, the biggest, I don't want to say black mark against the movie because then it sounds like I'm being racist, but uh, but it is a, a very negative uh, aspect of that film that she doesn't get killed sooner because she, she's an, an abhorrent actress. She's it's so bad in that film, but no, I, I got to say, I think you know, like because I think Friday the Thirteenth. I, I mean, I love the Friday the Thirteenth films, but I think they've kind of got some you know really just slogging it out towards the end problems that don't yeah really yeah pay off. yeah you're right not like New Nightmare or not like uh, Freddy's Dead that's oh, not that slogging it out at all film. that's not that's, that's not slogging film, but, a bit but then but then I think they have like there's kind of they're just you know disposable slot i mean both franchises have great points and both franchises have have nadirs i mean neither of them touches i think the kind of garbage moments that halloween can reach at some point this is true age 20 uh, see i don't hate that one either oh uh, yeah sometimes you're weird let, um, let me let me just let me jump in on, here and, and tell you that okay a couple things one the argument about which one had the better TV show is completely irrelevant because both of those shows are awful. And secondly, yes, both franchises, you know, interestingly enough, both franchises do reach a point where they get about, you know, a certain number of films in and they decide to go the meta route. And luckily for Nightmare on Elm Street, they had Wes Craven to write New Nightmare, which is the superior of the meta chapters. That being said, you cannot discount Jason X, which has some of the best Ooh. meta moments possible for that franchise, I including, love Jason X. including the murder of David Cronenberg at the beginning, which I thought was excellent. Here's the thing, though. When the Friday the 13th franchise is bad, you still have Jason Voorhees being Jason Voorhees. At very few moments in that franchise, is it ever... Uh, is he ever undermined as a character? Yeah. My problem with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is that when Freddy starts getting funny, it takes away what's scary about Freddy, and he's completely undermined by the comedy. They were more interested in developing Freddy as a personality, as a as a marketable tool, than they were as a an, an effectively frightening killer. Yeah. So for me, the worst points of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, it's still Jason being Jason, being a silent killing machine, and doing exactly what he's been doing since Part Two. Now, in part six, of course, they introduce zombie Jason, which is still effectively the same Jason. It's just harder to kill him now. So my, my whole thing is this. Yes, both franchises have very, very low points, 
Both of them have moments where it feels like you're just suffering through them. But at no point during the Friday the 13th franchise did I ever feel that the character of Jason Voorhees was undermined in the same way that Freddy Krueger was undermined by a bunch of, and I know this is going to sound hypocritical coming from me, a bunch of terrible puns. A bunch of terrible <laughs> puns that completely undermine the scariness. But I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be scary. That's the thing. I that's, can make those that's puns. That's all accidental. That's all accidental. <laughs> that's just genetics. When I murder children, it's completely by accident. <laughs> what? What were we talking about? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know, but let's not record that bit. And, uh, and I will say that as far as if we're going to throw out uh, ancillary arguments as well, Friday the 13th has the better Platinum Dunes remake. Ooh, that is true. That is actually true. As, as much but, as I like Jackie Earl Haley, I think the better remake between those two movies is unequivocally Friday the 13th. But then it still pales into insignificance uh, by comparison to uh, The Chainsaw which is the best of the Platinum Dunes remakes. It's still got a lot of problems, but it's, it is by far the hmm. best of the bunch. See, that's that's a that's a discussion we should have on a different show, yeah. which is the best of... Because most people are going to go, they're all terrible. It's like, I don't really think they are. No, no, I some honestly don't. Some really, I mean, I, you know, the um, Chainsaw and um, Hills Have Eyes both got some really good stuff going on. Now, the, the one feather in the cap for the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that I will uh, concede is that Robert England has played that character throughout... And he is recognizable as that character, whereas Jason's been played by like 10 different actors at this point. So I I, I understand. But again, I think that's part of the whole they were trying to build him up as I mean you, you look at the uh, the house that Freddie built which is New Line Cinema they needed him to be a personality they needed him to be something marketable because otherwise they were going to go under yeah so you know but any any rate good debate good but debate it, and to, in the closing point they're both great. This, you know, you know, I mean, like somebody gave me a box set of either. I'm not gonna, gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go. Oh, you know, there's some <laughs> stuff. Both, you know, there's some stuff we'd watch more than others, but you know, both great franchises. It's it's a very fine ending point to make because I own both Blu-ray box sets. So hey! there you have it. There you have it. Thank you very much, Alec Miracle, for that question. Our next question comes from Fred Marner, which is a two-sided question. He says, "What would be you guys' idea for best date movie, and on the flip side, the worst date movie?" Well, it depends because you know if I'm taking my wife out for a date, then it'd probably be American Mary, <laughs> which we both love. You are weird people. We I'm are... so glad you found each other. I know. So am I. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite possibly American Mary. Um, <laughs> you really going to put that out there as a, as a good date movie? For us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's got everything you need. It's intellectually challenging. There's gore. I mean, uh, um, I would... Uh, I think more generally, I would always throw... Um, Ooh, what would I put out there? Ooh. Well, let's start with well, let's start with a bad date movie. Okay, um, what what is your idea of the worst date movie? A movie that you probably shouldn't take any girl to go see. Actually, we'll be reviewing it later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the five and a half hour cut of Nymphomaniac. I am going to say that is the worst date movie ever because if you're in the mood before, you won't be after because you Truth. know it's five and a half uh, five and a half hours later, and you may be in a coma. Um, so much dick. <laughs> Just so much dick. Yeah, I, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that is kind of you know a, a phenomenally, or you know, go down the taxi driver out and say uh, deep throat. Although again, you know, depending. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with <laughs> the five and a half hour cut of Nymphomaniac. <laughs> but a five and a half hour cut of any film, I think, is a no no. My general advice would be try and keep it under ninety minutes for a, for a date night movie, because then you know you've still got a chance for something else to uh, transpire in the course of the night. Um, yeah. 
Fair enough. My worst date movie by far is the is one I saw this year, and is a little movie called Gone Girl. Because whether you're on a first date or whether you've been with someone for years, that movie is going to make you seriously consider the benefits of being alone forever. <laughs> it is it is an absolute assault on the idea not not only of marriage but of just people people in general. Like it's like you know people are awful, so don't try and and you know match up with one because y- your life will, will potentially be ruined forever. So it's it's sort of the anti rom com. It's it's the anti date movie. Uh, as far as best, uh, one I'm going to throw out there now. Now I'm going to I'm going to assume this question is asked in a magical universe where we aren't limited to movies that are in theaters right now to take dates to. So I'm going to say Ghost, and the reason I'm going to say Ghost is because of a little article, a blog that uh, that we published here on the site called Shades of Cinema by uh, a writer named Diva Del Mar, who referred to Ghost as a guaranteed get laid movie. Uh, and thanks the Righteous Brothers and a little naughty play with a pottery wheel for that, and I and I tend to agree. And she also mentioned that uh, Demi Moore is stupid, smoking hot, and worth searing into your brain for wackathon material. I love this girl. I think I think she's she really knows how to. No, Demi Moore in that film has got a twelve-year-old so boy's hot. haircut. I, I, it's now really I distracting. See, see, now you've sandbagged me. Where if I say anything else about Demi Moore in this movie, it's going to sound like I'm really into twelve-year-old boys. Win. God damn it, Richard Whittaker. Oh, I'll also throw in Beauty and the Beast. Disney's, Beast. Be, Disney's Beauty and the Beast because because yeah because you it, will get a guaranteed BJ yeah they're like oh, <laughs> that's joke. a beast job yeah <laughs> but yeah there's a, there's a you know it, if, if you're not like at least feeling a little bit romantic by the end of that then there's something critically broken in your soul true uh, and since it's Christmas time Love Actually I think is an easy go to uh, I don't like it either but as far as good date movies I you'll think say Notting Hill next no I won't. <laughs> because I'm just charmingly befuddled. Shut up! Just shut the fuck up, Hugh Grant. Plus, you know, you're all the people who complain that there weren't enough black people to accurately represent New York in Friends. Like, multiply that by a thousand and add in a complete dearth of Asian characters, and that's the problem with Notting Hill. Notting Hill is one of those ethnically diverse areas of London, and it's like, where is everyone? Who are all these middle-class white people? They were all celebrating St. Crispin's Day. Ugh. Moving on. What, whatever holiday and British people celebrate. Bastille Day? Sure. Um, so we're actually going to answer a third question because... Because we're feeling wild. We're feeling wild and there's very little to talk about in terms of release. I can't stress to you how small the batch of titles is this and week. And I prepared a list for this question. Oh, so holy cow. Holy <laughs> so Drew... Cl- he did. He totally has a list right there in front of him. Yep. Drew Clark asks, can you recommend any TV shows based on film storylines? And his favorite examples are The Highlander with Adrian Paul, The Femme Nikita, and uh, if we could avoid the obvious mash and Buffy, everybody already loves those. Okay, I'll start at the top. Uh, Star Wars Clone Wars, which is excellent. I've um, heard, I've heard. Uh, Blade, very underrated. There was really? A, I love the Blade series. Oh, wow. I, I was really, uh, with Sticky Fingers from um, Onyx, I was really upset when, the, when that didn't get a second season because it was shaping up really interestingly. Um it felt like it tied in with the film franchise, but then it really took it in some fun, interesting ways, built out the world a lot more. Huh. Took a lot of pot shots at Anne Rice, which I thought was hilarious. That always makes me uh, happy. Uh, <laughs> Kung Fu Panda, Legends of Awesomeness. Okay. Uh, where they get some guy who managed to do a really good Jack Black, and they, they, haven't, yeah! they, they haven't dropped the quality of the animation so dramatically it doesn't feel right. Uh, big fan of that. Uh, also, uh, 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 
Riders of Burke, the... Um, oh, the How to Train Your Dragon. Show. Which also yeah. builds up the, the story really well. Uh, Robocop, which nobody remembers, but becomes this really interesting... Really? The, I've heard nothing but the worst slanderous things about that. Yeah, people are wrong and weird. Uh, they, you know, <laughs> that's that's going to be a lot of people who are going to tell you that Robocop 2 is great, which is kind of like, it's alright, but it's got some real problems. Uh, Robocop, the series, uh, really becomes kind of this... It shapes up this very odd uh, cyberpunk series. Um, and, uh, oh, uh, Cortana in um, the um, Halo games mm-hmm. totally ripped off from Robocop. Huh. Absolutely ripped off. And I, I, I dare anybody to prove me wrong on that. Interesting. Uh, Stargate Infinity, which I think was the best of the Stargate series and should have gone on longer. And the, uh, the granddaddy of great, ambitious, big scale TV adaptations and spin offs from films. Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which not only is a good fun series, but is actually an excellent history lesson. And they did a really good box set of this a few years ago, where every single episode has a, 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 supplementary, a supplementary documentary about the historical events that it's keying into. It's really great. Huh. Yeah, I fully recommend If you're going to go for any of them, I would go for the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, because it's really good fun. And it it's basically... Indiana Jones minus any of the supernatural stuff or any of okay. the weird religious stuff. It's just you know adventuring in the end of the nineteenth century into the. So it'd uh, be like a whole show that's kind of like the opening of Last Crusade. Yeah. Okay. It basically is. I uh, would watch that. Watch uh, that. Uh, but it goes like Matahari is is a recurrent character, and it, you know World War. Weird. You know what Indiana Jones is doing in World War One, and you know it, like it's really good. It's really good. I can fully recommend that. Fair enough. Well, you, I mean, you kind of ran them all down. I, I will just add to that mix, of course, Hannibal, which I know is is a popular one right now. But I will say that few TV shows based on movies have ever made me rethink. Who is that? Like, have ever represented an iconic character and made me rethink who really has the better performance? Mads, I went from when I heard that they were making a Hannibal show, going, "Oh, you got to be fucking kidding me!" To I kind of think I like Mads Mikkelsen's Hannibal Lecter better than Anthony Hopkins, and that is an amazing, amazing feat for that show to be able to pull off, and for the performer himself to be able to pull off. So, hats off and uh, tops of the skull off to Mads Mikkelsen for that. Oh, so has he way up against Brian Cox, who's actually my favorite Hannibal? I actually haven't seen Manhunter. You've not? I have not Ooh, seen Manhunter. I've see seen plenty of Michael Mann, but for some reason that one just keeps avoiding my It's got radar. some issues, but it's got some really, really great stuff. I do recommend that fully. Fair enough. Well, there thanks we for your questions, guys. A, a trifecta of great questions from the letterbox today. And we're going to tuck that right back under Chris's bed next to all the cat toys and... Cats. Cat porn. And uh, we're going to move on to... Reviews? Shouldn't you explain to them what's what, you know, all the stuff that's underneath uh, this recording? I think I should, You Richard. probably should. I think, I think that's what I'm going to do right now. So you may notice that every title we talk about, plentiful though they may be this week, has its own little image down there on the post on oneofus.net. If you click on that image, it will take you to Amazon.com. Even if you don't buy that particular thing... If you get to Amazon via our link, no matter what you buy, it benefits the site. We really appreciate that. So if you're doing some holiday shopping on Amazon.com, just come here first. Either click one of our images here on Digital Noise or click the pick of the week on the front page. Get to Amazon, buy whatever you want. Please, please do that. It doesn't cost you anything, and it actually helps us out a lot. So keep us in mind as you're doing your holiday shopping. And we're going to start this week with Dear Expander Boost 3. Expander Boost 3. Yeah, I, I've mentioned this before, but the original trailer for the first Expendables ended with this terrible, like, Nickelback-sounding singer who, like, the music drops out and he just goes, 
Every one of us is <laughs> So from that point forward, anytime uh, the adjective an adjective would end in A B L E, I would say it like that. Like, man, I like this movie, but the ending was really. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's they didn't use a lot of uh, Dutch angles, which I find really commendable. <laughs> so it's just something that's been ongoing ever since the first one came out. So this is Expandables Part Three, and um, so in this movie. They have even more, you know, sadly trotted out <laughs> former uh, headliners from movies. Uh, you know, of course, the, the original concept is you got all these action guys. You got Stallone, you got Schwarzenegger, you got Bruce Willis, you got Jet Li, you got Dolph Lundgren. You got all these, like, classic uh, action stars in one movie. Well, in this movie, you don't have Bruce Lee. First, Bruce Lee. Bruce <laughs> you Willis. definitely do not have Bruce Lee. You don't have Bruce Lee because he's dead. And uh, you, you don't have Bruce Willis because he wanted too much money. So, Which I think is his way of getting out of doing any work. He just asks them for such a ridiculous amount but of money. But then he does the work when they do pay him and it's awful. Which well, I, yeah, but, I then, mentioned but this. then I think that's his revenge. He's like He waits for them to... like they, He says, oh, I'll only do this for $10 million and I'll only work for two days. And they go, okay. And he goes... People are idiots. I will but, take your. But money. the thing is, he's taking revenge on people who are forced to watch these movies, and that's yeah. why I'm like, go fuck yourself, Bruce Willis. Because if you saw The Prince with uh, Jason Patrick that we had to review a couple weeks ago, it was like the single most phoned-in performance I've ever seen. To the point that when he shows up at the beginning, I went, "Oh, it'd be hilarious if he doesn't actually show up again to the last scene." And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. He'd clearly be ra- rather be doing Moonlight Kingdoms, and like he just takes the money for this. But yeah. in this case, they they got so many people on the cast they couldn't offer him whatever great, it was he wanted. Great story about this is that Stallone calls Bruce Willis, "Hey, we don't know the expendables," and he's like, "Yeah, I want a million a day," and he's like. Well, you know, that doesn't work because we all take less money so we're going to be in the movie. He's like, now a million dollars a day. So somehow Harrison Ford found out about this and called Stallone and said, hey, I'll work for less. Can I be in the movie? So Stallone calls Bruce Willis back and goes, you've been replaced by Harrison Ford. We'll work, we'll work together on something else and hangs <laughs> So Harrison Ford, Antonio Banderas, Kelsey Grammer, Mel Gibson. Um, I'm missing anybody as far as the new cast. Um, for Expendables 3. Oh, well, there's the whole bunch of new of, of yeah. young kids who turn up. There's Tito Ortiz, who's a boxer. There's no, no, Tito Ortiz was, was uh, is UFC. Is but Tito, Tito was in the first few. Oh, okay. Well, no, it's not, it's no, no, not, it's not who Tito. Who is that? Who am I Tito? thinking of? I don't know who I'm thinking But Ronda Rousey's in this, who is a female UFC fighter, because apparently Gina Carano's phone doesn't work. I don't know why they didn't try to get her, because Gina Carano, in addition to being a great martial artist, can actually halfway act, yeah. whereas Ronda Rousey absolutely positively cannot. Um, so, Victor Ortiz, not Tito Ortiz, excuse yeah. me. Victor Ortiz, who is a boxer, is in this movie. Uh, and then Terry, uh, Terry Crews is back. For about oh, five minutes. Oh, of course. I'm, I know the person I'm missing is Wesley Snipes. Yes! Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Wesley who- Snipes on crazy who might be the reason that the expendables 3 for me is the least woefully stale and most enjoyable of all the expendables movies hey yeah it, i'm not which is not high praise i'm not saying immediately go out and buy this film i am saying of all the expendables movies that we have watched this one I hated the least. <laughs> and okay, and so most of that was because of Wesley Snipes. Should we explain that there is actually a cursory plot? There is kind of a plot. It starts off with Barney and his team of expendables having to rescue uh, a prisoner from a Russian tra- uh, prison transport train. And wouldn't you know it, it's Wesley Snipes. And uh, so they rescue Wesley Snipes. And he apparently used to be a member of the expendables. And he's been rotting away in prison for a while and when they ask him what for this is this is why i like this one a little bit better is because the way that it's meta is not so it's not just 
uh, it's not just uh, Schwarzenegger saying all the lines from all of his famous films over and over again, like the second one was, but it was just like, shut the fuck up, that's enough. This one is meta in a way that's a little, is, is very self-effacing. Because when they ask him what he was in jail for, he says tax evasion. Yay! Which, if you remember, is exactly what Wesley Snipes went to jail for. So, I like that it is, the way that it's meta in this is actually self-effacing and not just like, hey, remember that It's not like when they're trying to sell you a Time Life box set and it's like, oh, your favorite quips, remember this one <laughs> and that one? Instead, it's more like, yeah, I went to jail for tax evasion. <laughs> So, yeah, I like that better about it. So they rescue Wesley Snipes, and um, they're sent to take down this arms dealer, and they get there, and the arms dealer is Mel Gibson, and they realize, oh, that's actually somebody else that we thought we had killed years before, who, get this, also used to be an expendable. <laughs> so they're just expendables all over the place in this movie. Spenderboos. Um, so Stallone makes the very hard choice that, like, because of something that happens on that mission, he doesn't want any of his team to get killed, so he essentially fires them and he hires. He doesn't seem to understand what expendable means. Yeah, that's neither does this franchise. Because no. spoiler alert, nobody fucking dies again. <laughs> Not one member of the Expendables team fucking dies. And I know that's a weird complaint, but it's like if these are suicide missions, if they're supposed to be expendable. Why have none of them died? And there was a moment this, I'm like, oh, they've killed one. Obviously, that guy's going to die. There's no way he could ease bees back. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me right now? So that's one of my big beefs with this whole franchise. It's like you have literally expendable performers. And because you don't kill them off, the cover, if you look at the cover of this Blu-ray, it looks like an overcrowded family reunion photo. And where they, they can't even fit everybody on the front. You have to flip it around back to see some of the other people. It looks like one of those variety, uh, you know, upcoming actors of 1973 yeah. fold-outs that goes on for like 20 pages and you're like I don't even know who half these people are the real yeah. problem with, with this is that they introduce a whole bunch of new characters who are kind of these cutting edge versions of the expense they were like don't need do them. parkour don't or there's one who works computer and the only one who stands out at all is Ronda Rousey and she's not the best actress on the planet no. the rest of them are kind of like uh, is one of the, I, I was one of them is Kellen fucking Lutz, aka the poor man's charming potato. Yes, aka one of the worst things, but not the worst thing about the Twilight franchise. Aka the reason the Rocks Hercules movie looks so good. Yeah, <laughs> like by the, comparison, but they yeah they're very interchangeable, and when they get and then when they get hung up by their their elbows by Mel Gibson, who is uh, yet again Mel Gibson playing crazy and doing it quite well. Weirdly enough, Weirdly I enough, know suspicious. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean this franchise is what it is at this point. It's big dumb action films. Um, with a lot of nods. The fact that Harrison Ford turns up flying a helicopter because he flies a helicopter. See, that's he's the meta a, I'm talking about. Yeah, he's actually a helicopter. And it's like, eh, it's, you know, it's, it's fair enough. But so many people turn up and are in it for like 20 seconds. That you're really like, I'm not emotionally invested in any of these characters. Um, I will always turn up and say, hey, Jason Statham is here. Great, I'll watch him for five minutes. Because Jason Statham's just... just Awesome. That's um, true. And the fact that you know he, him, and um, Wesley have some great moments together. They got some of the best badinage as they're both both going. No, I want to be Sly's best friend. No, I'm best Sly, Sly's best friend. No, I'm better with knives. No, you're better with knives. Oh, we're all great with knives, and they were actually pretty entertaining together. But this is true. I, I, I think part of the problem with this the franchise is that when they do have those moments of, of chummy badinage, mm-hmm. um. The, most of these people aren't improv actors. 
and these scenes feel improvised, so they're just talking over each other, and they're like, this needs to be a bit more structured. Um, And the final, there is a huge final action sequence that is half an hour long, and it is a good ten minutes too long. It really, that's the problem. I think, you know, these are vanity projects. They're entertaining vanity projects. I think you already know whether you're going to enjoy this one or not. Uh, you You know, the Kellen Lutz fan club will be out in force. True story. You know, I, mean, they're, they're, I, I like like the fact these people are still working. Uh, this makes this makes me extremely happy. This is the best of the bunch. Yeah. But they you know they are what they are and I think criticizing almost criticizing them for like not being better films is kind of like eh, you know this, this, I, is, this I, is this is a bunch of action action stars going to Bulgaria and blowing shit up and blowing up Bulgaria. Yeah, they pretty much do. They blow I, I agree I with that. lots of Bulgaria to be blown up. I, yeah. I agree with that statement that you can't judge these for not being good movies. My biggest problem with this franchise, however, is that it doesn't even it doesn't even hit the mark in the ways that the movies that made these guys famous do. Yeah. For example, if you look at the way the action sequences are edited, that is completely modern contemporary bullshit. That is not the way these scenes were edited when these guys were making movies in the 80s. There are no fucking montages. Well, in this one, there kind of is, where they're recruiting the young ones. But again, who gives a shit? Because I'm sorry, they're not interesting. Yeah. And yet again, yet again, it does this thing where it packs the movie, absolutely packs the movie with classic stars... And then does something to put them in a bubble for part of Like the second one, where they crash the plane into the mine, and then it's like for ten minutes, it's like, oh, you have all these great action stars sitting underground and waiting. Yeah. That's, wow, there's that's really great of, action construction. slow. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's mostly because of these young kids, which, again, I don't fucking care about. I think that's a completely useless part of the script that was wholly intended. It was wholly sliced along going, oh, well, maybe we need to get more audience by bringing in the young guys. Like, no, no one who sees these movies regularly gives a shit about Ronda Rousey or Kellen Lutz. They're there to see the guys who are on the fucking marquee. And I will also say uh, Antonio Banderas is great in this. Antonio Banderas he is, is great. He is actually possibly the only thing that overshadows Wesley because yeah. he's basically a from a different group that were like the Expendables and got fired seemingly because he can't shut the hell up. Yeah, he's a, he's an erotic gab factory and he's just like, he's this silly little dude. Of course, when shit hits the fan, he's good to having a fight, but like... In between, he's just like, this. I want to be a part of the group. I want to be a part of the group. Tell me what I have to do. I have to tell you this story. I have to tell you that story. And it's like, he is. He's just like this wound up little little chihuahua. And it's just so funny to watch. He is. He, yeah, I think, he, you know, if you've seen the other ones, you're wondering, well, I kind of like those. Is there any reason to watch this rather than just break out my copy of, of Expendables 1 again yeah. and rewatch that? I, I honestly would say that Banderas and Wesley Snipes added to the equation. That makes it worthwhile. Yeah. But if you if you hated the first two, there is no reason on the planet for you to pick this up whatsoever. I would agree with that. And here's the thing. Stallone tried to blame the failure of Expendables 3 on the PG-13 rating, which I think is a huge problem. Like, there's no reason this movie should be PG-13. However, there is an unrated cut that comes with this Blu-ray that is no bloodier than the regular one. No. So I'm not really sure that's what's to blame Stallone. I think people are just mi- tired of this shit. There's one micro moment of digital blood, and I'm like, ah, yeah. really? And it's like, I'm... I wanted an actual unrated cut rather than just a cut they didn't bother getting a rating for. Yep. So this one uh, comes with a few documentaries. Expendable 3 documentary. Stacked and Jacked, which is all about the young kids, which again, I don't give a shit. 
stunt, a thing about the stunts, a gag reel, extended scenes, some trailers. I mean, your basic EPK. Uh, it does sound really good. I will say I put this on uh, in my theater room, and the uh, the Dolby Atmos that it uses is actually really powerful. So if if they could only use less CG and less editing with a sewing machine, I think that would have made the action sequences really stand out, and then with the sound, at least made it you know worthwhile for that. But overall, I think this is the best of the Expendables movies, but again, keep in mind, that's not saying... It's still an Expendables movie. Yes, absolutely. Would you say these movies are Expendable? I would say they're pretty horrible. So we're moving on to... We're going to talk about the giver. That's my Jeff Bridges impression. We're going to talk about the giver. Jeff Bridges is finally being swallowed by his own beard. (laughs) I would agree with that. Now, apparently, if you were at school in America in the mid-90s, this was the most important book ever. This is a award-winning... You know, it's 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 real. The Giver is the original contemporary YA novel. The young it's, adult it's, it was really the, kickstarted. It was the original thing. Orwell for kids. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, well, maybe not Orwell. Maybe Aldous Huxley. It's one of these ones. Brave that New World. So for many kids. people I know who grew up in America in the nineties read this, and like, li- I mean, this is part of the problem. This this has nobody outside of America has ever read this book. <laughs> it it doesn't. It's like. Like and some people to... in America sitting at this table haven't read it's this like book. It's like Leave It to Beaver. It's a thing that like every American seems to know, but the rest of the planet's like, oh, what? Like, <laughs> why? What is this thing? It's like, is this some kind of pun? I don't understand. Um, <laughs> so basically, it's the future, and a city, a perfect city, has survived, but it's only survived because everybody is medicated. Off their nuts. Yeah, basically it's a society that has outlawed emotion, that has outlawed memory. Uh, everybody speaks with perfect, uh, what do they call, precise language. And they're, they have uh, reached a level of sameness. Like, there's no, there's one race, there is one, re- like, there's no religion, there's no race. Like, everybody is the same, which which they feel prevents uh, anger and hate and, and envy. So, I will say this, that concept... I like that they decided to do the movie in black and white because that is a concept. Oh, no. Ah, got to stop you there because that's in the book. Okay. That's actually in the book. The book that, says. The book is that the, the, basically everybody is so heavily medicated uh, that, you know, they've lost any sense of color or taste. Everything is everything is this blandness. Mm. Like, there's some stuff but, in, but in the But you know, book. you know as well as I do, there could have been a million ways that a studio went, yeah, but it needs to be in color and tried to accomplish that same effect. Well, in fact, when they first when they released the first stills and it was in color, everybody lost their shit. So there even if go. they were planning to do that, which I don't think they would, they, you know, they, they understood, like, this is what. The, the property involves, and this is a, a, a moderately to fairly faithful uh, recreation of the book. That basically, there's this one character. Everybody's given a, yeah, a life task when they they uh, reach uh, the age of sixteen. Although in the book it's twelve, so that kind of changes the the mm. dynamics. And this kid is is going to become the receiver. Um, the catcher. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jeff, there's a scene. Are you saying that Jeff Bridges is the pitcher? Look, when I when I heard, you know, I've seen the book. The the I've seen the book on shelves everywhere. I've never actually read it. But then when I got the the Blu-ray with the the three people on the cover, I was like, the giver is that like a pitcher? Just in my head, like making a funny joke. And then there's a scene in the movie where this young kid who's picked to be the next. Uh, what do they call him? They don't call him the giver. They call him the. Um, uh, Rememberator. Yeah, that guy. There's one guy in society who's who's tasked with having all the memories and all the 
emotions. How does this work? Never explained. Never really explained. Never explained. But it's through touch. And there's this scene where he meets Jeff Bridges, who is the old guard who's about to hand down the mantle to him. And Jeff Bridges, if you close your eyes and just listen to this scene, you're pretty convinced he's going to fuck this kid. Yeah. Because it's like, there's no, there's no way to explain what I'm about to do to you. But if it becomes too much, just let me know. And it's just like, whoa, 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 what is happening? Safe word, safe word. Whoa, calm down, Megan's Law. Let's take a step back. So, no, and that's that's neither here nor there, but it did make me laugh. But, yeah, so this is it's the story about a kid who is raised in a society where emotion and memory and any individuality whatsoever has been completely stricken, and yet he is suddenly uh, imbued with all of... All of these emotions and all of the, you know, he's, he can see color. He's got memory of things. Obviously, they're not his memories, but they're somebody's memories, which, again, never really explained how all that works. Maybe it explains it more in the book, and I nope. just haven't read it. But nope. No, it I doesn't? Mean, this, this is a very thick political allegory, uh, but yeah. it's not... In fact, one of the complaints, historical complaints of the book is that it sets up this whole uh, cosmology but never explains any of it. Mm-hmm. But so he goes off and spends time with Jeff Bridges in Jeff Bridges' you know, hut on the middle of nowhere and starts to think, well, maybe the whole world should have these memories back. And Everybody on the grid should have these memories. And then, oh, wait, that's the wrong movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then, of course, he goes home to his, to his mother, uh, uh, Katie Holmes, who convincingly plays somebody who has no actual inner inner emotional life, also, or, or knows what human beings act like. Also, every time they would like show like this big like ceremony or a sweeping shot of the of the society they live in, I'm like, is this just what Tom Cruise convinced you the future was going to look like? Like, is this what you think Scientology is? <laughs> Maybe you're a little too familiar with this. <laughs> I, purists of the book may get a little bit upset that they basically bolt in a romance plot line and then there's these kind of action sequences at the end that also aren't in the book but it i mean this is really you know gateway to you know fahrenheit 451 or thx1138 i mean there's a lot of other post-apocalyptic stuff which has been done which hits the same kind of vibe the dystopian is, stuff yeah, yeah this is very you know and it does that okay i mean there's a lot of stock footage of like this is what the past used to look like and it's yeah. like a good 20 minutes of this 98 minute film is stock footage and by the way if you're making a 98 minute film how the hell you're closing credits 10 minutes long yeah i was i was just watching that and going really it's like because I, th- I kept going I was looking at the counter on my, on my TV and going, oh, then there must be like a scene at the end or something. It's like, right. no, it's 10 minutes of credit. And I'm like, wow. And therein, I think, surprising. lies my problem with this movie. I understand that it is the progenitor. I understand that it's not ripping off Divergent or Hunger Games. It came way before those. And in fact, the opposite is really true. But the thing is, I'm burnt out, man. I am yeah. so fucking burnt out on young adult dystopia that like this just came through. If if this had done something special, if this had strived to be remarkable, I think we would be having a different discussion. But it just kind of limps along, on resting on the laurels of like everyone knows the books. Well, I, I obviously don't, but most people do. And it just it to me, it never did anything that was emotionally resonant, and never did anything that was um, spectacular. It just it just it is. It just exists. It's like it's like the society itself. It's very bland. And stale. And it doesn't make it... There's no point where you watch this and go, well, it's made at least a halfway daring creative decision. I mean, you know, compare it to The Hunger Games, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I think A, is a really solid adaptation. B, you've got a a very charismatic lead actress and a really strong supporting cast. 
not just have bridges getting eaten by your <laughs> face. <laughs> um, and, but also it does daring things like, you know, you have a YA uh, you know, franchise which is aimed at mid-teens and you go, hey, you know what? We're going to give you a contemporary bluegrass soundtrack. It's like, that. that's... Even something. little decisions like that, it's doing something daring. You don't get any of that here. It just, you know, it it's, you know, it's the, the Expendables 3 of young adult dystopian adaptations. It's like, meh. And here's the sad part, is that Jeff Bridges has been trying to get this movie made for 20 years. Yeah. He's been trying to get this movie made since before we had The Hunger Games, since before we had Divergent, since before we had Name It, Name It, Name It, Name It, Name It. In fact, he used to shoot family versions of this film in his garage with his dad as the giver like this is how much he wanted to make the movie but it took yeah i know Sorry, I'm just, it's crazy I'm seeing right? lloyd, lloyd bridges going oh, i'm the giver and it was a hell of a day to give up sniffing glue <laughs> um, which would have been a much more ent- I, I, I would like to see those myself i think that'd be far more entertaining true story but you know when it finally hits it's finally arrived and it's just because there's nothing there's there's nothing spectacular about it. It just feels like more white noise in the whole, you know, YA dystopian craze. And I don't know. I just, it's not a bad film necessarily. Like there's nothing about it I can point to and be like, oh, that's woefully awful. It's just, it just is. It's very middle of the road. It's very, very vanilla. Yeah. It's a very and vanilla. The, and movie. The, the it kind of makes a rod for its own back that it's it's horrible dystopian future. Uh, I've seen much more dystopian. Uh, you know, like you, know, I kind of go. Eh, well, you know, if you're gonna live in a dystopian future, if it's that or THX one one three eight or Logan's Run, I know, you know, I'm gonna go with that. I mean, that seems a bit more comfortable, frankly. And you know, you don't get killed when you're twenty one, or poked by faceless policemen with, with with weird electro probes. Did you make a Logan's Run reference? I made a Logan's Run reference. Well done, sir. Thank well God. done. We're gonna move on. Oh, uh, before we move on, I guess I should say that the giver. Has some special features, I guess. Yeah, it has some features. <laughs> some people have features. Sometimes they're in color. Mostly it's Pleasantville. Um, oh, well, that, yeah, that was the thing. I was watching this and going, that's a much better film than this. I kept thinking about Pleasantville and going, that does a lot of the same things, but in a much more smart and interesting way. Here's, here's, this should tell you all you need to know about how, like, bland and tasteless and completely boring this movie really is. One of the special features is a study guide, an interactive reference guide for studying the novel. Oh, good. Homework. This Blu-ray comes with fucking homework. Amazing. For the kids who are going to love doing extra fucking homework. Thanks, Jeff Bridges. Also highlights from the original script reading, snooze. A a press conference, snooze. From page screen, which is a short making of doc. uh, There's a thing about the author. Blah, 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 blah. One extended scene. So... The special features are as ho-hum as the movie itself. So moving on from there, we're actually... Please move on. We're moving on quickly to <laughs> oh The Hundred Foot Journey, which is a film I actually expected to really dislike. Well, yeah, because... Because got, of the best exotic marigold hotel. Well, also, it's got two things that are immediate strikes against it in this day and age. Go. One, uh, Steven Spielberg attempting something rom com and contemporary because he's a producer in this okay and two the mere presence of Oprah Winfrey uh, who uh, at this point I pretty much despise beyond measure wait wait, wait what do you mean the presence was it one of her book club recommendations yeah oh, she okay. like her basically it's like, her she's not in the movie go, we need to make sure this film happens and yet it's surprisingly good uh, the basic story is that this family gets displaced from uh, from India um, and the only thing they know they know how to do is to 
cook Indian food. They run a nice little restaurant there. They go to England. That doesn't work out for them. Uh, but quite nicely researched because the the first place they go to is, is supposed to be under uh, Heathrow, uh, the Heathrow Airport flight path, mm-hmm. which actually there was a huge Indian population there. And a lot really? of them actually work in the uh, airport service industry. Huh. And particularly a lot of them actually go and because they... Yeah, you know, a lot of them uh, have some food training. There's a huge amount of food preparation for airplanes is actually done just outside of Heathrow. So like, like that, I was like, oh, somebody's done. So that's what research. he was doing. But then, huh. you know, that doesn't work out. So they go to this little village in France where there's only one restaurant, and they go, we're going to open our own restaurant right of course, next door. Of course, not realizing that the reason that uh, that restaurant is the only restaurant. Uh, is because it is humongously successful. It is a Michelin-starred restaurant in the middle of nowhere in France, which is you know tough to do, but it's making money off it. And they're going to go, well, we're going to do a traditional Indian restaurant. It's like, oh, feud inevitably happens. Um, yeah, this movie should be called And You Thought Americans Were Racist. Because, we, you know, I think a lot of us have this this opinion of like, well, Europe people are more progressive. They don't have the same hang-ups about you know homosexuality this isn't Europe, and race. It's France. And, and you, yes, exactly. This is <laughs> Europe. This is France. And uh, Madame Marie, uh, played by uh, Helen Mirren and her staff, are they say things like they have no understanding of class and culture, and it's like, really? Yeah, <laughs> really, assholes. Um, so she does everything she can to get them. Like she. Like files grievance after grievance over every little thing, trying to get them shut down, and then inevitably at some point, somebody in her staff is going to take this fervor too far, and that's when she starts going, "No, that's not what I wanted," even though it totally is. That's the one part of this movie that really rang false for me is when she's like, "I can't believe someone in my staff would do that." I'm like, "You were all but telling them to." So well, I, like, I think you I, develop a conscience real fucking quickly. This is actually one of the things that this film does really well, but in, with a kind of light hand, because we're making it sound like it's like some serious heavy political drama. It's not. It's a cooking film, yeah. which is actually one of my favorite weird small subgenres, because when it's done well... Um, you really love Eat, Pray, Love, don't you? Oh, I... You Eat, over, Pray, Love it. I, I'm going like, to come over it. there and smash you over the head with this empty... Dump, and just after you disparage the Oprah book club, here you're no, sitting there I, loving Eat, Pray, Love. Babette's Feast, okay. which is one of my all-time favorite films. I love Babette's Feast. And this kind of has some of that. If this film has a problem, it's like every single food-related film you've ever seen uh, has like a 20-minute contracted version of it in here somewhere. It's like a ratatouille of other cooking films. Yes, it is. Well, there's even, yeah, but there's even, there is even the ratatouille plot. Yes. There's even the ratatouille. <laughs> Like so many things, but it does, which is even more racist if you think about it. Yeah, but 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 there is this element of, well, you know, France has not got a great record at the moment on race relations, and there is this kind of sniffishness. But then there, you know, you know, you can not like like people moving in and ruining all that is French because they're very defensive of French culture. But then you know, not actually firebombing their house, which is one, which is yeah. what happened. And so there's a kind of this melting of relationships between the between the two restaurants, which are literally a hundred foot apart. Thus the name and the son, who's the cook in the the Indian restaurant, which is never taken seriously. He goes and works in the in the posh French restaurant, and it's you know it's about him kind of you know trying to be French and then losing his own cultural inheritance. But then there's this beautiful kind of like delicate old people subplot between the you know Helen Mirren and his father, and there's mm-hmm. like there's a lot going on here. But it's it's kind of it's like delicate and yeah. funny, and I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I like this. And it does tap into, but again, there's like a lot of stuff that it taps into. 
about modern politics. So the fact that you've got an Indian restaurant next to a Michelin uh, star restaurant, because of all the kinds of food that the Michelin people hate, Indian food has been top of the list for years. Are you saying the French Im- people are a little snooty? Yeah. Is that what you're... Because that's, that's a but bold it was Im- stance it was to take, impo- Yeah, it was basically impossible. I, I remember there were headlines internationally when the when an Indian restaurant got a Michelin star, you know, because it was like, you know, they culturally hate it. So there's all these things that are actually really clever that if you, if you know... The kind of cultural background, you'll pick up on those little bits, but you don't need to know that. You just need to know that this is kind of a, you know, a cute romance. If it's got a problem, it is that it tries to pack too much in. You know, there's like this whole third act, which is almost a fourth act by that point, when the son goes off to Paris and becomes the most applauded uh, uh, chef in, in, in Paris, and the, the rest of everybody's left behind, and then he kind of becomes a little bit of an asshole for the final act, where he's actually been the nice, likable character. So there's a little bit, you know, I, I, this has about what you're five saying is that the third course, the third course, the, the portions are too big. Uh, I would actually say that there's an unexpected fifth course. That you were like, not, <laughs> you were like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, and you, it's like when you go somewhere and you, and you have the uh, prefix menu. And you didn't look that like there's actually a fish course and a main course, and you get to the end of the fish course and go, oh, that was really good. And then you know your beef Wellington turns up, and you're like, oh, it's it's really, oh, I really love beef Wellington, but oh, what, can I just go straight to dessert? And you're kind of poking at the vegetables. Who's beef Wellington? I don't know that person. Is that a, is that like a British ruler? It's a, it's a it's a dish. It's a beef dish. Wellington. No, beef I know. Wellington. I know what you're talking. About. <laughs> I'm just being an ass. <laughs> Just being an ass. I wish I wish I were a hundred feet away from you, so I was out of your Aww. fist swinging range. But yeah, you know, I I this is kind of delicate. It's funny. It's sweet. It does have some in, some like relevant points to make. It's kind of surprising how much I like this one because I was really prepared to put this on a shelf next to something like Eat, Pray, Love, and then burn that shelf. I was it was it was trudging along a little bit, and then I got to say what won me over was the earnest performance of Manish Dayal, who plays Hassan, the young Indian cook. Like he is. He is completely earnest throughout the whole movie, and there's something in something in that sincerity that makes you love him. Even though, um, you know, there there are moments where like the, the the prejudice against their family just seems way overdone. But throughout all no, of no, it, no, it's 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 and pretty, and I'm sure that's that culturally actually, I'm sure it's culturally accurate. But as somebody who doesn't have any idea of of you know of European cultural relations, as somebody who just watches movies, it felt like completely over-the-top, amplified-to-make-a-point yeah. type filmmaking. But, you know, and that eases off, I think, by about the second act. And it really, like, it, it just becomes very sweet. And I, I I couldn't help but be won over by it. And, uh, yeah, I will say that I'm disappointed that as great as a cook he, as he is in, in Indian cuisine, that he wants to learn French cooking. Because they keep, like, jumping over to the, the fancy French restaurant and showing their dishes. And I'm like, that's not food. Three cubes with a sauce on it. It's not fucking food, France. The fa- this is what pisses me off about quote-unquote high cuisine. It's like, no, I'm, you're not going to pay $60 for three cubes covered in sauce. That's fucking bullshit. That is, that is the definition of pretension to me. Like, no, this is good because we say it is. Okay, here's all my money. Fuck you. Yeah, whereas traditional French food is like, you know... Let's put half a cow in a pot for six hours and come That's back when fine. the meat's full. I am you know, all so about like, that. Know, but it is, a, yeah. There is that question of like, you know, is good food really about snootiness? And they're kind of like, it's it's 
you know, Babette's Feast is again that kind of like kind of you know there's there's heavy stuff going on, but then there's this lightness and the food sequences. I was just looking at and going, oh god, I'm hungry. Fine dining is about being told. It's just like the art world. It's being told that the person who made this is the best chef in the world, and it's about making the food look like little sculptures. And not, I'm sorry, like, even if it's the tastiest stuff in the world, that's bullshit to me. And even though I don't even like Indian food, at least with Indian food, it's like, that looks like a meal. What? That looks like actual, like, an what? actual meal. Hang on. I don't, I'm, I, it's, it's not my cup of, of tea or uh, chai or what? whatever. It's just not. You're weird. You're weird. You're I'll British. Just, I'll just have to take you some decent Indian places. You've clearly not had good Indian. Yeah, you're going to go there and then try to colonize it. No, I don't think so, Richard. <laughs> that's what we does. <laughs> Gandhi, baby, gone. Oh. Richard and Brian. Um, so yeah, this. <laughs> wow, we got way off track there. Sorry. I don't know what happened. I don't either. But yeah, the movie's really sweet. I think it has a, a, a nice little, uh, nice little ending on it. Nice, a nice finish, and uh, the the aftertaste is really good. So I don't know why I'm reviewing this like taste, food. Tasted of, of porcupines and raspberries. Yes. 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 Or other French dishes I don't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this disc has a, a few extras. I mean, if you can tolerate Steven Spielberg and uh, Oprah Winfrey talking about anything at this point. Um, Spielberg, maybe. Yeah. Oprah. Sp- Sp- Spielberg, I, just just stick to historical dramas. That's all we need go. from you at this point. You know? I agree. And, you know, something about the food. And there's a making of. And it's like, yeah, there's the standard stuff. Uh, way too much Oprah for my liking. Way too much Oprah. Hey, speak- Which is any... Speaking of way too much, let's talk about Nymphomaniac Volume oh, 1 and 2 Director's Cut. If you ever wanted to watch a five-hour movie uh, that was made specifically to piss off someone's producer... Literally. I have a film for you. Oh, God. If you haven't seen Nymphomaniac Parts 1 and 2, this is where they really, 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 really test your patience. Um, I really wish they had called this Nymphomaniac All the Parts. <laughs> because in the director's cut you see a lot more parts oh you see you see parts you see all <laughs> the parts if you have not seen Nymphomaniac the regular uh three and a half hour cut which actually, I actually hadn't four out four hours of it I have only seen the director's cut uh four the hours uncircumcised of it. cut if you will. um the the basic narrative is that um Still in Skarsgård? I fell into a coma around hour six. Um, <laughs> is is walking along and finds a woman who has clearly just been beaten up quite severely. Um, played by, what's her face? Thingy. Charlotte Gainsbourg. Charlotte Gainsbourg. I would say Charlotte Rampling. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then I was thinking Max Monomore, which if you've never seen, do. Just because that's a little bit weirder and even creepier. I find on the it so hard to even film. follow the words you're saying sometimes. That's good. Not because of the accent, but because you make references to things. As somebody who appreciates obscure references, and when you go over my head, I'm like... Jesus Christ, Max man. Max is the film where uh, Charlotte Rampling um, uh, fucks a chimpanzee. Um, See, I had no idea that existed, but I feel better as a citizen of the world knowing that it does. Double bill that with the night porter sometime and try and sleep again. Oh, boy. Um, so he takes her back to, to his apartment, and she starts telling him her entire life story. Yeah, it's a, it's a sexual memory play, if yes. you will. It's basically, you know, a disgusting version of of uh, the memoirs of Fanny Hill that basically she again dis- zoom she discovers at a very early age that she is an nymphomaniac um and this is you know her long series of stories and anecdotes about 
her sexual conquests um, and the things she's done over the years and why she does them and trying to understand you know the motivation behind it. Yeah. Um, but in a in a clear nod to the usual suspects. Um, she Which looks is also at, a memory play. Yeah. She looks at items around his his uh, apartment and says, "Well, okay, this remind this item here reminds me of this story," and they become the chapter headings. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the if you've seen the the I think we can call it the expurgated version, probably close enough. Um, a lot of the sex is implied. It's kind of this stuff happens, but it's it's not as graphic. Holy hell, they put it back here. Yeah. This was- <laughs> there is no doubt that this is like... Uh, there's actually some stuff that I'm pretty sure because they just introduced some new regulations in the UK about um, what is and is not legal as pornography to be sold. I'm pretty sure this is now illegal in the UK. Yeah, it reminded me of like if you took a Christina Lindbergh uh, Swedish porn and made it an art film. Yeah. That's kind of how the uncut version uh, worked. Well, Lars von Trier took, you know, he's clearly taken what... A lot of drugs. Well, yeah. Uh, and a lot of booze. <laughs> and he's now admitted, he's now now said he's not going to drink or take drugs again. And he's worried he can never make films again. Not a problem, pal. Um, <laughs> that was my exact reaction. Stanley, Ku- Stanley Kubrick for years said he wanted to make a porn film with... Um, Actual mainstream actors, mm-hmm. yeah, with big name actors. Now that, that was, and instead he'd end up doing Eyes Wide Shut, which is almost that, but it's not quite. This yeah. is like, nope, nope, nope. Uh, this is just a a lesson in debauchery, and as you know, it, it's still split up into two parts, and part one is kind of like you know, kind of you know, gleeful in ways as she's enjoying telling her stories. To which Stalin Skarsgård goes. Uh, I'm asexual, so I'm just interested in this as kind of a theoretical uh, digression. He he refuses to judge her at any point. Yeah. Which, for most of it, I'm kind of in his corner. But then the part where she, like, breaks up a family just because she tries to get rid of a guy so her next date can come in, and there's this really awkward, painful... You know, it's a Von Trier film, so even though it's about sex, you're going to have that moment where you're like, I just want to... If if I could go, like, get... uh, a root canal right now instead of watching the scene I would gladly do it and in this first part it's the scene where Uma Thurman comes in with the children of a man who has just left her for uh, the young version of Charlotte Gain- uh, Gainsbourg who's played by Stacy Martin um, basically Stacy Martin tells him you need to leave because uh, you're never going to leave your wife and I can't have you blah 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 it's just lip service so she can get him out of there but he goes and leaves his wife so Uma Thurman comes back with the kids and is like, I just wanted the kids to meet the woman that they left me for. And, oh, look, here's the bed where your father likes to sleep with this whore. And it's just like, oh, my God, get me out of this scene. Get me out of this scene. I don't want to watch She's this. so good in it. She's really good. She's one of the really best good. things about this. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Stacey Martin you know, is far more engaging and interesting um, than Charlotte Gainsbourg. In yeah, fact, because she spends most what? of the first part in this weird, like almost comatose state where yeah. she's talking but she seems like she's not even there. Yeah, uh, Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg is not... This is, I think, the weakest of her collaborations um, as an actress with uh, Von Trier. I mean, this is part, you know, part of a, a, a loose trilogy 
uh, with Antichrist and Melancholia. Uh, I, this is better than Melancholia. It's called the Laudanum Trilogy, yeah. as in take a bunch of it afterwards. This, this is, you know, I think still, even for its its oppressive length, is still better than Melancholia, which me didn't work at all. I oppressive was... length would have also been a good title for this. Sort of, for this <laughs> uh, but it is, it, it is both are completely overshadowed by how great Antichrist is, mm-hmm. uh, which I still think is Von Trier's best film by a, a long way. Hmm. Um, you know, this extended version... It puts back the sex. It um, there's nothing really super new in it. There's a couple of plot points that are extended. Um, there's a, a very yeah. Be warned if um, uh, you're squeamish about on-screen abortions. This is graphic. That is one of the most. Mm. You know, this is as graphic as the clitorectomy sequence in uh, Antichrist. I mean, it is. It is really, really unpleasant to watch. Um, uh, so yeah. I think so yeah, anti-date movies. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Like I said, um, as, uh, you know, the best thing about this extended version because I actually preferred the fact that you know I, I am no prude. I just thought the fact that you had. Uh, a four-hour movie about sex and you didn't really see any sex was kind of hilarious. I thought mm. that actually was like a really clever trick. Putting it back in, it was just like, oh, yeah, there's a porn actress pretending to be um, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg getting DP'd. Uh, and really, I, I don't care. Like You took no. away the, the humor of that. Well, the best thing that this puts in is uh, a lot more Christian Slater mm-hmm. as her father who... It's quite good. Yeah, he's he's actually really good in this, and I was like, yeah, you know, it's the same as with Kiefer Sutherland was by far the best thing um, about Melancholia. I was watching this and just going, yeah, no, he, he, there's something really fascinating about an actor trying to self, take himself out of his comfort zone. But now there's so many people who work in there who are in this, they're in their comfort zone, so it's not even transgressive. It's just mm-hmm. like, eh. and to go eh, about a five and a half hour smutathon, I think is is a little tragic. Well, and it's also really hard to say like Von Trier is doing something bold or transgressive when we know for a fact because it's been stated in interviews that the only reason this longer cut exists is because he wanted to piss off his producer. Yeah. So how is that? How can you possibly hear that and make the argument? Of, oh, he was doing something bold and he was really trying to, uh, you know, rebel against uh, societal constraints of what you can and can't. Sh-. No, he's not. He's fucking with his producer for for God's sake. Yeah, in fact, I at this point for him to do something transgressive, he needs to do a straight out kids movie. Yes. That's what he needs to do because yes. it's it's Von Trier. I mean, like you know, he's he's pushed so far in the other direction, and I think at this point he's actually he was never my favorite of the Dogma um, directors. I always preferred Vinterberg. I thought he was a, you know much more solid director, much better grasp of narrative. This does some really really interesting things, but it takes five and a half hours to do it. This yeah. is the, this is the ultimate argument about why. Uh, Jodorowsky's Dune should never have been made because that would have been three times longer than this bullshit. Yeah, uh, so. yeah, no, that's very true. And I and I will say I actually enjoyed the first volume of the, the movie. The first volume is still by far the better. The I, second volume is improved in the expand in the extended cut, but the first the f- part one is by far better. I, I think the first half has some really beautiful moments that are. Um, the the metaphors that he plays with are really fun, and, and it is interesting to kind of hear her story. And I'm kind of a sucker for memory play structure. 
uh, I really do like. I really do kind of like hearing if there's an interesting character and have have interesting experiences throughout their life. Hearing that story uh, is always going to be something that interests me. So I liked that about it. But the second half, yeah, I was just like, ah, this is this is worn out. It's welcome already. So I can't I can't recommend it because it's really like recommending half a movie. Yeah. And I don't know when I've ever been like, yes, go and pay money and watch half the movie and then leave. Like, <laughs> that's a that's a weird thing to recommend. But I don't uh, know. We like you're skipping the last half of Old Yeller. I skipped the last 10 minutes of Old Yeller for sure because fuck that doggy snuff film. Were you raised by Phoebe's parents from Friends? No, but I did watch Friends and I agree with her because <laughs> fuck that doggy it's snuff film. Movie. <laughs> it's not a movie. It's a snuff film. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, because somehow Nymphomaniac made me very angry about Old Yeller. So we're going to move on to Drunk History. I'm going to crack open my... History textbook, and we're gonna do a little. Re- you know how you know that's fake drunk because that's not at all how I sound when I'm drunk. No, I'm very like I don't slur my words when I'm drunk. I just, You're just say loud. You're I just loud say very and loud, you, and then you then you go bring me more alcohol, and then you regret it. Yes, like very publicly. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much so. Very much so. Hey, how the fuck I didn't come up with this idea is beyond me. Comedy Central. I think has been, you know, uh, uh, slowly dying over the past few years. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, should have been theirs to pick up. Stuff like The League that they have let go to other people. And now this kind of like, this is a, a good amount of redemption for, for a, a station which has been, you know, disappointing. Basic idea. You get a comedian. You get them extremely drunk. And then you get them to recount a bit of history. And then you get other comedians to reenact their drunk-ass version yes. of that historical it's moment. It's fucking brilliant. It's so such a silly, simple idea. It is the first moment, I think, that uh, Comedy Central has grasped what it is that um, make things like Funny or Die really work. Mm-hmm. That kind of short hit... Goofy, you know that these act, that these comedians could probably be doing bigger projects, but they're going to do something damn silly for ten minutes. It works so well, and you're like every comedian working the circuit is is in there somewhere, and people who are like way too big to be doing this turn yeah. up and slum it for ten minutes. Like I, I love there's a, okay, so if you if you haven't, it, you may remember there was a meme many 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 years ago on the internet where this guy told his uh, his guy was talking to his girlfriend and she had had a couple of drinks and she had never seen Star Wars but was convinced she knew what it was about so he ha- he recorded her explaining the plot of Star Wars and then he animated what she said and it was the most ridiculous thing imaginable and that's what this entire show feels like it's like they know basically the facts but the way, the way or, that they there can, was a point where they really did or they know really the facts, just don't at but all that was half a bottle of vodka ago yeah exactly like they did know the facts and then they forgot all of them so they're just making up what they can to keep talking and it's the reenactments where the the actors are literally saying every single thing with the ums and the ums and you know fucking you know that you do when you're drunk and you're trying to explain something and, uh, and which is really funny. My favorite one is uh, Terry Crews as Joe Lewis. <laughs> Terry Crews as Joe Lewis uh, fighting uh, Schellenberg twice. And then, like, they get Hitler in there. Uh, you know, like, Hitler was like, we're going to broadcast this on the radio. And we're all, you know, like, going to party. And, you know, like, bars need to have booze. And you just have this, like, 
this person playing Hitler who's just like, yeah, cool. And then my favorite part is when, when they're exiting, they're like, and then Joe Lewis started to beat Heckelberg or Schellenberg and is like, okay, uh, pull the plug and uh, don't listen to it. And, uh, and and like you see the Hitler leaving and he goes, and, uh, boo Jews. And he runs away. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, this is insane. And, and that's... It, there's just so much fun to watch, and they're they're not very long. Each one, like you said, is about ten minutes. They do about three an episode, usually under the umbrella of maybe some loosely constructed unity between the stories. But usually, the unity that is come up with by a drunk person. Exactly. Like everybody on this show, bar the cameraman, seems to have been hammered pretty consistently. And it, yes, it is probably not the uh, the best commercial ever for moderation. <laughs> No, no, uh, of course it not. Is, it is, uh, it's pretty damn good fun. One of my favorite bits is uh, when they're interviewing David Wayne. And the thing is, I have seen Drunk David Wayne, because I interviewed Drunk David Wayne. And it, David Wayne is the guy who directed Role Models. Uh, he was part of, uh, uh, was it Upright Citizens or The State? Which one was he a part of? I can't uh, remember. Upright Citizens. Upright Citizens Brigade. Uh, and I have actually interviewed that guy when he has been drunk. And it was one of the worst interviews I've ever done because I couldn't get a real answer out of him. It was funny, but it was like there was nothing I could actually write about because he was so wasted. <laughs> he would just answer every question with a completely unrelated question, uh, which was funny. But yeah, there's like, you know, like Richard said, you have so many comedians. Uh, and a lot of them, you, you actually, a lot of the cast of. Uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine shows because Latrulio is on here at some point as well. So yeah, it's a really um, it's a really fun. This box set comes with the first and second season because there's not a lot of episodes in the first season. But it's I can't recommend to you enough to go out and pick this up because it's just so much fun. Like if you have some people over and you're drinking, you just want to have something on in the background. They will be laughing their asses off by minute one. So oh, uh, highly recommend. And it is actually also informative. Uh, you will find out more about the origin of rappers' delight than you ever thought you were going that to. That is very which true. Is one of the finest ones. That is, the, and you know, part of the pleasure is is watching it and going. Who's that all the under under all that makeup? As that oh, that's that's who's playing Chris Christopherson. Like, and the, you know, the term history is some kind, sometimes loosely applied, but this really is. It, yeah, this is one of the best things that you can watch. Not necessarily your grandmother over Christmas, no, but it's pretty damn funny. Absolutely, check this out. This is Drunk History. Uh, this collection has both season one and season two. And we're going to move on to the Criterion selection of the week, which is... L'Aventura. 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 Yep. I'm doing with bigger gestures, which comes across so well on the radio. Anyway. Why have you suddenly become a character from Futurama? I I don't know. You look like like the guy from Danucci's Pizza there. You're like, like, hey, Fry, where's your dog? Stomp on a turtle and eat a magic mushroom with me. So this film, this is a, a 1960 film by Antonioni, uh, who you may remember is the director of Blow Out, Up, mm-hmm. Blow Up. I always, I always mix those two up. Blow Up, which was later remade as Blow Out by, uh, by Brian De Palma, which was also partially Rear Window. Don't worry about it. The point is, <laughs> he directed Blow Up. This film um, is about a, a bunch of rich people in Italy who go on this this yachting. Uh, they're going out on their yacht, and they're cruising out to this island, and then one of them goes missing. And it's up to the boyfriend and the best friend to try and find her, which sounds like a thriller, except for the whole thing where it is not a thriller. Yeah. Um, this is this is like a, uh, a missing person's mystery if it were written by Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. 
Because what it's really about is like the examination of, of love and how it can spring immediately between two people. And is it real or is it just, uh, is it just a passing uh, affectation? And then it's, you know, it's, it's examining class. Like do rich people have just too much money and freedom? And so it's, it's very much like any, any plot. Like you can almost see it written in novel form by Ernest Hemingway. Like every, every place they go to quote unquote look for her is like this beautiful hotel or this ancient village with these wonderful coffee shops or they're going to this this romantic location or this romantic location and you get the sense about halfway through like you don't want to find this girl no. at all that's the that's the whole point is it's a it's a missing person's mystery where the people looking for the missing person don't want to find her at all yeah they don't care they are beyond this and then there's this whole plot line of like as the the boyfriend of the best friend come closer together and you know, is is the best friend becoming a surrogate for for Anna, the missing girl, or is she a real replacement? And there's some weird moments with with uh, with mirrors and wigs that make you go, "Well, hang on, do these people even have any personality? Do they have anything, yeah. or are they so dissolute that they're basically just you know doing whatever they feel like?" And it's it's a pretty harsh commentary. On kind of the 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 wealthy enough to get away with doing nothing uh, in Italy at this point, and it you know the rare moments of emotion you're not even sure whether they understand what it is that they're doing yeah. or why they have these feelings. Yeah. You know, it's just like well, what feels good at the moment? I mean, it's it's pretty pretty harsh and brutal in a lot of ways. It is beautiful. It's this it's is, very beautiful. Yeah, this is. Um, it, yeah, it is. It was a, an epoch-changing movie in Italian cinema. You know, it, it's you know, this kind of re- neo-realist movement, which but it starts becoming much more in, about the internal life at this point. Um, it's you know, there's a lot of kind of you know, real biting social commentary. Um, it's almost silent for most of its length as well, and it's this is. It's long. It's two hours twenty. Yeah. Uh, but somehow that you you you're so engrossed by these slightly you know not even unpleasant but very flawed characters that you really want to see where they're going next. And there's a you know it, it less has a a resolution. <laughs> there the, is no resolution. There's no resolution, but there is a, there, there's a moment where they come to an understanding about themselves, and that's where Antonioni goes, "Okay, I'm good, I'm done. We 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 don't need to know anything more about them." I really enjoyed this. I mean, I think this is one of the better um, Criterion releases in a while. It was a great commentary track, uh, which, if you buy this, I fully recommend uh, listening to the commentary track, which really analyzes its place in Italian cinema at the time uh, in a, a really learned but fascinating way. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you can watch it without losing track of much of the plot because it is, it is virtually silent. I mean, there's very little dialogue for for most of its duration. Yeah. And somehow it manages to make the Mediterranean, uh, you know, all these beautiful islands, look and feel oppressive. Yeah. You know, you that they're, they're just grey slabs like suddenly in a grey background. You've shown up in Gorky sky. Park instead of you know yeah, this, this wonderful Mediterranean you know, this, island. This, this fact that these people can't escape themselves. I, I this is I, like I said, and this is one of the the better recent Criterion releases. See, I am going to diverge with you. I really did not. The word you used, engrossing, is exactly what I did not find this film. I you know for me this is the epitome of pretentious like this this is exact i mean they have made they have parodied this exact type of movie when people are trying to show you like 
a broad stroke joke about what a pretentious film is. Like, this is one dog smoking away from being a French film. <laughs> yeah. And I just, you know, and I get, I get exactly what they were going for. It's not that it's obfuscating with its, with its themes, but like, I don't find these characters particularly interesting because they are so, uh, because they are so wealthy and because they are so careless with how they treat people. And because the moment you find out that they don't really care whether they find it or not, yes, as far as uh, plotting goes, that's an interesting t- twist on this kind of movie. But it makes me stop caring about where the plot is going because apparently it's going nowhere. It's going to the next coffee shop. It's going to the next bullfight. I mean, this is the reason I really shouldn't like Ernest Hemingway books. But for some reason, something about the way he writes them keeps me engrossed. Whereas Antonioni's, um, you know, sort of visual construction is is very beautifully shot. But that silence becomes just so aggravating to me after a while. It's like, I, I just, I can't get into it. I can't rally behind the characters in either one of their missions, if they're actually looking for the girl or not. It just, Everything about it feels superficial and, and false. And I think I think there's a, a certain amount of that comes from the neorealism and trying to trying to present a false front. But it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. So yeah, I... We're, we're on an agree to differ on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, so whose whose feet is the dog sat by at this moment? So I win the canine. Yeah, vote. you're gonna yeah. you're gonna change your tune when he farts. Um, so we're gonna move on to um, our last title of the day, and that oh. is a very exciting one. For the opposite of uh, an Antonioni film on every level is the Weird Al Yankovic film UHF. You should see the happy dance I am doing right about now. He is doing a happy dance. Hey. Weird Al, you know, the more I think about it, the more I realize Weird Al was such a presence in my life, <laughs> throughout my youth. Like, I used to... Stalking you. Yeah. Just drowned, I, drowned the house. I actually remember one of the, not one of the first, but a CD that I bought very early on in my CD collecting days was Running With Scissors. <laughs> <laughs> this was a weird Al Yankovic. And his most recent album, I had completely forgotten this, went to the top of the Billboard charts. Yeah. The first time since 1963 uh, with, uh, who is the, uh, Alan, um, uh, the famous, that a parody album is hit number one. Yeah. Alan Sherman. Yeah. Uh, the first time since Alan Sherman in 1963 that a parody album has hit number one on the Billboard charts. I mean, this guy has not lost a step, and he's been doing this since the 80s. UHF came out in 1989, and it is his fucking magnum opus. It is everything that is great about Weird Al, or, on the other side of the coin, if you are a Weird Al detractor, everything that you will positively fucking hate about Weird Al (laughs) in one film. It just so happens that his comedy works for me. So I'm a big fan of this movie. Uh, Basic plot line... um... Weird Al's character inherits a UHF station. There's so many people listening going, what the fuck? what a UHF station is. What, what a, U- is that like a UFO? A UHF, UHF was uh, the suit back before cable, uh, or, uh-huh. or rather back when people couldn't necessarily afford cable. There were local TV stations that were so low-powered uh, that they were given a UHF license and just went, look, you're going to cover six houses and, and, and <laughs> maybe a, a, an illegal dog running, dog smuggling operation. That's pretty much it. It was like local community, like local television to the nth degree, like like one neighborhood's local TV channel. And so he and his friend decide we're going to make a go of this, which is a terrible idea. Unfortunately, for the local TV station that's actually doing well. They're good at it because they come up with the world's stupidest programs that are so terrible that you just go, 
I just want to watch because I love the car crash element of this. <laughs> Wheel of Fish. Wheel of Fish. Stanley Spadarsky's Funhouse. <laughs> Secrets of the Universe yes. with Philo. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then there's like uh, fun with dirt. Yes, there's underwater bingo. It's it's basically it's it's just a, it's a parody film about the the tel- like the television network industry is is really what like and and the shows that were out at the time and especially the movies that were out at the time. Yes, this is full of film parody that I think is worthy of uh, the film parodies. I think are worthy of Abrams and Zucker. Like it is it is that level of just completely silly, but yet at the same time uh, very very aware of exactly how those films work and how to how to skewer them a little bit um so i that was probably my favorite part of the, of the film is is all of the movie parodies that he does but there's also you know this kind of fun plot about struggling against the against the man who's trying to grind them down and steal and you know and push them out of business which works pretty well in fact i think yeah over time those bits have actually aged a bit better because everybody just back then they just wanted to watch it uh, for the the parodies, and it didn't do that well at the time. I think it, it was one of those ones that was classified as a hidden gem. And I think over time, people have realised, God damn, this is just hilarious. Yeah, you know, it's it's Al at pretty much his best. Uh, the spoofs they finally gave him enough money to really spoof stuff really well. Uh, there is a great First Blood Part Two. <laughs> amazing where, with him in this amazing big muscle suit that's just like and he just keeps making these noises and then blowing up buildings he, he like makes the that noise Nahal just suddenly explodes. he makes that noise and then a palsy face like Spencer Stallone and something else explodes it's really pretty hilarious yeah the whole thing is just this gamut of crazy gags none of it makes a lick of sense but it doesn't have to this fits right in with you know it's like with the the airplane movies, yeah. with that whole tradition of crazy eight, and this is like it's the, the final note of crazy late seventies early uh, to to eighties madcap comedies. Mm. Nobody really, I think, you know, this kind of killed it because everybody went, "This doesn't work anymore. We're not making money off this anymore." But it, or in a way, it's like you can't push it further than this. And it's the first time they give an owl like movie money, not big movie money, but movie money, and. He takes every penny and, and just runs with it and probably just buys himself bubblegum and pixie sticks and just comes back and goes, guess what we're going to take the piss out of next? And it's just ridiculously good fun. I think this would make a great triple feature with Hot Shots uh, and Stay Tuned. Yes. If you haven't seen Stay Tuned. Uh, but this is this is a real, like, if you like this movie, this is the release to get. Because not only does it look great on Blu-ray, in fact, it actually kind of plays up some of the weird, like, if you go back and watch, like, a DVD or even a VHS copy of this movie, you realize how weird the flesh tones look. Yeah. Like, they're they're almost pink. Like, it's really bizarre. It's like, uh, especially in the news station with the, uh, with the halogen lights coming down, like, it's very... Everybody's kind of like weirdly pastel, but anyway, so it looks great on on Blu-ray, and it is packed, packed with extras. It is a fantastic release that not only includes um, the music video, which, by the way, this is the movie that gave us uh, the Beverly Hillbillies spoof, the spoof of uh, "I Want My MTV," in which he talks about the Beverly Hillbillies. But on top of that, they have a uh, from from just this year Comic Con. Uh, the panel that that Weird Al did when his album had just gone to number one, what? and it was like a, a big, you know, uh, honoring uh, Weird Al panel. There is one of the funniest commentaries I have ever heard. Weird Al and his uh, co-writer slash director, 
um, that would be Jay Levy, sit there and the first thing out of out of uh, Weird Al's mouth when the MGM lion roars, he goes, I don't remember that line from the movie. <laughs> and then the Orion logo comes out and he goes, Orion is bankrupt. <laughs> and it's just, it's just fun from that point forward. And then on top of that, you have deleted scenes, behind the scenes footage, uh, the music video of uh, The Ballad of Jed Clampett. Um, production stills. There's other. There's other Easter eggs that are hidden throughout. There's so much, and of course, reversible cover art because it's from Scream Factory, and and they Yay. do these amazing. Uh, this. What's interesting about this cover is that even though some of it is painted, it still looks like they just went to a magazine and cut out pictures. <laughs> you know, like if somebody took stills and then put them in the magazine, somebody just cut them out and glued them together, which kind of, you know, highlights the hodgepodge nature of this TV network that he runs. But it's it's an excellent, excellent, excellent release. Uh, Shout Factory has really outdone themselves. This is my pick of the week, by the I, I, way. Yeah, mine too. Mine and, too. And it leads into what we're giving away for our giveaway. This is uh, it's not UHF, but it's called Weird Al Yankovic: The Complete Al, uh, which is the almost true life story of a rock and roll legend. It's basically a fake documentary uh, that is feature length long. Uh, that kind of explains, you know, where he came from in his childhood years and all that stuff, except that most of it is bullshit, <laughs> uh, it's, which is hilarious. And on top of that, it has eight, that's eight, Weird Al music videos, including uh, I Love Rocky Road, Eat It, and Dare to be <sighs> Stupid. The classics. Yeah, the classics. absolutely. So this is... Uh, this is what we're giving away this week. We have a DVD copy courtesy of Shout Factory. And here's how... Do you want to come up with something? Or I'll come up with something. Okay. Here's how you're going to win. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to follow one of us net on, tw- on Twitter. That's at one of us net. And then you're going to tweet at us with the answer to this hypothetical. What would be the worst song possible for Weird Al to spoof? Wow, that's a good question. I like that a lot. And what would it, what would the spoof version be called? Yes. <laughs> so tell us the name of the song that would be the worst for Weird Al to spoof and what the spoof version name would be called. Uh, hashtag that Al giveaway. Mm-hmm. We'll pick our favorite and send that person the DVD copy of The Complete Al. And that's it. That's the whole show. Yep. That's it. I'm curious if we made it to an hour. We did! We made it to almost an hour and a half! Woo! Because we can talk nonsense for longer than most human beings. We are so full of hot air, it's incredible! Don't forget, folks, you can always subscribe to uh, oneofus.net. Please it, do. Yeah, it, you know, the buttons are there. Uh, don't forget, you can always buy, you know, buy, buy stuff from Amazon through the links at the bottom. Go back and listen to that bit again because you know you got to fill out the extra half hour. We didn't we didn't do? You're right. You're um, right. Hey, and if you want to become a subscriber, now's a great time because we've just started the Breakfast Pub, which is our our morning news show that ooh. we do once a week. Me and Chris sit down and we talk about all the headlines and all the trailers that have just come out, uh, and that is available only for subscribers. But even at the two dollar level, you get access to that. So become a ooh. subscriber today, and you'll get access to our brand new show called the Breakfast Pub that Chris and I do every week, and we put it out early in the morning so you can actually listen to the movie news. As you drive to work. Aww. See how that works? Aww. And we get real drunk in the morning, so Yay. enjoy that. And also, like Richard said, please use our Amazon links uh, for all of your buying purchases. Please follow us on Twitter. This is at DigiNoiseCast, at one of us net, or you can follow us individually. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Yorkshire TX. And of course, you can like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash one of us net. If I forgot anything, I don't think so. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this show up like I always do, reminding you no release is too big, no release is too small. From criterion to catastrophe, we review them all. Bye!